Let's come before our God in prayer. Gracious and merciful Father, to you we lift up our eyes. And with your hand you have exalted kings and torn down kings. You have established kingdoms and destroyed kingdoms. In fact, the nations are as drops in a bucket and the inhabitants are as grasshoppers. As soon as the kings and the rulers of this earth have served your purposes, they are gone like the flowers of the springtime. So my soul, why are we so afraid? Why do we fear that something will take us from your hand, our Father, when it is your sovereign power that holds on to us? Why do we fear political parties and loud talkers and bullies and wicked men? Teach us, Father, to put aside that fear that drives us to over-scrupulousness and place our trust in you alone. Teach us to live boldly, to love and embrace and speak kindly and listen without fear and without anger. For you are our God and we are your people, so what have we to fear? This morning, Eternal Father, we come before your throne as your dear children. We pray that you would hear us, for you have cleansed us by the blood of the Lamb and renewed us by your Holy Spirit, that we might bring forth the sacrifices of thanksgiving to you. First, Father, hallow your name in our midst. How we long for your majesty, your goodness, your love, and your wisdom to shine out in all that we do and say. Fill us with your spirit so that we might become more like our Lord Jesus each day. Forgive us our many sins. Forgive us our fears and our distrust, our grudges and our anger, our idle words. Clothe us with the perfect righteousness of Christ for that. Without that, we are without hope. Forgive us our racism and our strife and our bickering and our anger and clothe us with Christ. Grant us patience in our trials and health in our bodies. We pray that you would give healing to Roger and to Steve, to Bud, to Hugo. Bring comfort to Gail's family. You have said, Father, that the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Shine on us today. Give us healing in our bodies in our broken relationships, in our souls, in our families. Heal our broken hearts and our doubting minds and lead us to still and quiet waters. Teach us, Father, to rest in your bosom. And Father, heal our nation. Godless rebellion and violence and hatred are on all sides, both the right and the left. And the church, which is to be a pillar and ground of the truth, is taken over by false doctrine, nationalism, violence, fornication, assault. The schools are given over to foolishness and a hatred of knowledge. Lord, we are in trouble and we confess our sins to you and we pray that you would not deal with us according to your justice, but deal with us according to your mercy. Draw near to us, for we have rebelled against you and have reaped the whirlwind. Tear down false shepherds and oppressive rulers. Protect us from those who cause unrest and stir up strife. Raise up faithful shepherds in the church and in the nation and in the home. Remove those who speak foolishness and who deny the Savior who bought them. Those who proclaim another gospel and those who devour and destroy the helpless. And come, Lord Jesus, with your word and your spirit. May your gospel be preached truly in all its beauty without fear. May idols be cast down. And may the world know that there is a God in his temple and keep silence before him. And again, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for looking the other way. 
Forgive us for tolerating false doctrine and false saviors. Forgive us for our fear and our anger and rage and teach us to rest in you. And so bless our witness in our community. Bless our congregation. Cause us to grow. Cause a light to shine from here for many generations. Provide for all of our needs. Keep us faithful. Bless the reading and preaching of the word this morning. Guide my lips and give us ears to hear. And let's pray together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. My prayer this morning and the sermon this morning uh, will follow the teachings of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 58. Uh, For Isaiah was ministering to people very close to our nation and our communities and our own hearts, for human nature has not changed. So for our scripture reading, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58. When the prophets are speaking of the Sabbath, in order to keep that in mind, the prophets are speaking primarily of resting in the promises of God, which was symbolized by the day. But they are not primarily motivated by a legalistic interpretation of what you can and what you can't do on one particular day, but on resting in the Lord. Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice, they take delight in approaching God. We have fasted, they say, and you have not seen Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is, this, is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him and hide not yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. 
You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord hath spoken. My text this morning again is in Luke chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. I gave the overview of this chapter last week. We were speaking of stewardship. And I will pick these verses out of the middle and and focus on them, which are the center of this passage and John's teaching and his rebuke of the Pharisees. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. I'll be reading from the New King James. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Last week, I spoke of stewardship. I said that stewardship means that everything we have, our goods, our money, our life, our breath, our strength, our gifts, our abilities, all of it is loaned to us by God. The day will come when we will, to use the example of the first parable, we will all be fired. We're all going to die. And all of that will be buried in the grave with us. And stewardship teaches us that God has given us those gifts on this earth for a purpose. The reason is that we might use those gifts to build up for ourselves friends in the life to come. In other words, to strengthen and edify and encourage those who is placed in our lives, those all around us, from the person next to us in the pews, to the beggar outside our gates, to the person at the grocery store, the person who signs our paychecks, our spouses, How do we use the unrighteous mammon to make ourselves friends in the world to come? This was Jesus' teaching to his disciples, as we read at the first part of this chapter. But now we read that the Pharisees were listening to him. As he concludes with saying, you can't put your trust in unrighteous mammon or unrighteous riches and serve God at the same time, the Pharisees scoffed at him. It's the strongest word for mocking someone in the strongest possible words. They blew their noses at him is what it says. The Pharisees had centuries of traditions behind them. And this was brand new. 
They'd never heard anything like it. The natural response when you hear something brand new is to scoff at it. But there was more than that to it. They had centuries of separating themselves from sinners. They had centuries of keeping the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law pure from the unclean and the wicked. And now the implication is that they're supposed to use their money that God had so greatly blessed them with to help those sinners who are simply getting what they deserved. After all, it's the natural order. The poor people stay poor and I stay rich. That's the way things are. God created it that way. They knew the scriptures so well that they could put a pin through the scroll and tell you what words it went through. They had tiny rolls of scripture tied up in cloth and and stapled, sewn to their garments. They knew the original Hebrew that the unwashed masses had forgotten. They knew how many steps to take on the Sabbath day, how to wash properly and make yourself clean, and how to avoid impurity. And they knew that money was a gift of God, and therefore those that had it were righteous, and those who did not were not righteous, and that was God's order. Their reasoning was if God loved you, he would of course bless your business, and you could take your rightful place at the head of society, at the best tables, at the best feasts with the best people. The best feasts, as we saw in chapter 15, were reserved for the rich, the influential, and those who are highly esteemed before men. It never occurred to them that they might be sinners. They were greatly offended at John the Baptist when John implied that they also need to be cleansed from sin. They knew that they were righteous and blessed by God because everyone said so. They had carefully cultivated that image for centuries. But Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sums them up quite simply with just a few words. They were lovers of money. And we all know there is a certain misery attached to poverty. Lazarus, for example, in the next parable, slowly starving outside the rich man's gate, was not a fun way to live. I'm sure that Lazarus longed for a few coins so that he would never have to experience that kind of hunger again. This is not what it means to be a lover of money. We know that in every age the wealthy will have access to medical care that the poor do not have. The poor must live from day to day wondering if they will have a place to live or gas to put in their cars or clothes to put on their children. A lover of money is not someone who is longing for a few extra dollars in order to make life a little bit simpler. That's not what the scripture means by a lover of money. In fact, only the most hardened man would rebuke Lazarus for being a lover of money for wanting to eat something today. In the context, it means something else. Jesus rebukes them for being lovers of money, as Luke says, which he describes as justifying yourself before men and chasing after that which is highly esteemed before men. These were the religious leaders. And instead of teaching about the good news of the kingdom of God, that it's at hand, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, they were striving after the esteem of men. 
That's what a lover of money is. They love those things that men highly esteem. What men value. And what is it that human beings value? Status. Celebrity. Esteem. Respect. The word glory is a good one for this. Let's describe glory using our terms a little bit so we can understand what Jesus is getting at. If you're in a place where celebrities tend to be, Rodeo Drive, a fancy hotel, you can see when a celebrity is coming. There's a lot of commotion. There's a lot of people pointing their fingers. There's maybe a group gathering around. There's cameras clicking. And you want to get a look. Oh, who's that? Who's that coming over there? If it's an event, they'll roll out a red carpet. There might be a platform. There'll be banners to stand in front of. Be very expensive clothes. A lot of people that want to get close to speak a word to get acknowledged. The cars arrive with the esteemed ones in it and everyone knows that someone important's about to get here. You can achieve that status if you sing a song everybody wants to hear or act in a movie that everyone wants to see. You can also achieve that status with a lot of money. But you can't ever achieve that status by those things that are esteemed by God. For God sees the heart. The Apostle Peter said that God views the incorruptible beauty of a gentle heart, of a calm and contented spirit, as having great value in his sight. Very precious is the words that he uses. But having the incorruptible beauty of a gentle heart and a quiet spirit doesn't get you invitations to the best seats, does it? You don't roll out a red carpet to the person with a quiet heart. This is what was meant by lovers of money. I once worked at a very large hotel in Colorado Springs that frequently hosted celebrities. Most of them were kind and just wanted to be left in peace. There was one minister, though, a famous minister, who would not get out of his limousine unless a red carpet was rolled out for him when he was arriving to the restaurant. There are ministers that will not fly in commercial airplanes who live in houses worth millions of dollars because that was the, what they view as the esteem of men. The Pharisees, to mix the cultures, loved the red carpet. As Jesus said, they loved the greetings in the marketplaces. They loved the best seats at the feasts. They loved to be esteemed. They loved to be recognized. The examples I've given you are very gauche examples. There aren't very many people that are like that. But lovers of money are frequently far more subtle, especially in our day and age when they desire also to put on a show of humility. But this desire for what is esteemed among men has not left us. Now the term sometimes used is the celebrity culture. I was thinking about architecture in churches. Seems like a strange segue. Um, I have been in churches much like this one my whole life. But every once in a while I've gone to visit or have seen video recordings of these large, very influential mega churches. 
and the architecture has subtly changed. Now there's a huge platform. Everything is surrounded by thousands of theater-style seating where everything is pointing to the stage. On both sides, there are gigantic screens. There's spotlights, there's lasers, there's lights, and everything is focusing on a spotlight on the pulpit. And when you walk into the building, the first thing is you're in awe, and you go, wow, it's very similar to entering in a large rock concert. And then when you get inside the sanctuary, you sit down on the chair and you know that someone extremely important is about to be seen on the platform. A man who dares not ever be questioned. I read an account of one huge, very influential mega church that had a great deal of respect around the country and how they held their staff in bondage by assigning who got to sit on the platform and who didn't. If you were out of favor with the lead pastor, you didn't get a place on the platform. And thus the lead pastor got away with theft, abuse, sexual assault, and the most horrendous crimes because no one would speak out because they didn't want to lose their place on the platform. That is a lover of money. These churches pay PR firms to spin stories and build the brand. The brand is everything. It is what is esteemed before men. And so no one can question him. He's a godly man. He's on the platform. Simply to write saying, I think I disagree with him on this point of theology is to invite scorn and ridicule and reproach for daring to question the celebrity on the platform. This is what the Pharisees longed for. They were lovers of money. That glory is very carefully constructed. They pay people to construct it. And that pastor holds celebrity status over his congregation and over his staff. To get a little silly to understand what we're talking about, think about your favorite celebrity. You'll probably mock the list that I'm about to give you, but pick your own favorite celebrity. Taylor Swift, Stephen King, Millie Bobby Brown, um, Elton John. That'd be my guy. Doesn't matter who. Now, imagine that you sent them an email saying, uh, hey, I really liked your song. I really liked your book. I really liked your movie. And you got a handwritten letter in return. Not only that, but they invited you to lunch. That'd make you feel pretty special, wouldn't it? When we admire people, when we acknowledge it, when they acknowledge that we exist, we feel a little bit like some of their glory has rubbed off on us. We don't want to believe horrible things about our favorite celebrity. I remember the first realization that Bob Dylan's words were mostly just gibberish. It affected me to my core. Because when you like and admire someone, you think they're writing very profound words and you're just too dumb to understand them. And then you realize that it's just gibberish. This is why everyone has a strong opinion about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. That's the evil that Jesus is condemning. The Pharisees, the leaders, those who are supposed to be teaching God's people are seeking that kind of status. They long for it. They strove for it. They pushed for it. Just like so many preachers do today. I asked a woman once if her pastor would know her name at a grocery store. She said, are you kidding? He wouldn't even know that I existed or went to his church. 
I heard from one woman who was abused by her school teacher for years and years and years in a Christian school. And one of the things that he did to hold her in bondage was he introduced her to the pastor. And she was so in awe that such a great man would say hello to her school teacher that he also must be a great man. That's the power that great ministries use to hurt and to destroy God's lambs. It's the power that the Pharisee class was looking for. They were looking for the money and the power and the charisma and the carefully cultivated image. Just like so many do today with the special lighting and the way the chairs are arranged, the way the light hits the pulpit, the way the clothes are chosen and worn, the music, the sound, the program, everything is paid for, produced, slick, and it takes a lot of money to do that. And you contrast it to the early church where people gathered in homes because they didn't have buildings of their own. Or if you were Jewish and you confessed Christ, you would be cast out of the synagogue and then you would lose your job and your family and your society unless you were a slave in which you didn't have any of those things at all. And Christianity spread like wildfire through the slave class. And they met in homes where they gathered themselves together. And as you read through the book of Acts, you read a lot about these churches in Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. But you know what you never read about when you're reading those names? Who their pastors were. Who was the pastor at Berea? Who was the pastor at Thessalonica? Who was the pastor at Philippi? You know a few names when it was necessary to teach us about Christ. In all those cities where Paul planted churches, there was not one celebrity in the whole. In fact, Paul was ridiculed at Corinth for not being a celebrity. He showed up and he was trembling and fearful and weak. Christianity doesn't seek that which is esteemed by men, but that which is precious in the sight of God. For we are disciples of Christ who took the lowest place of all. The faithful preachers are those who preach the gospel and die forgotten. But people are impressed with celebrity. People are impressed with money and entourages. People are impressed with outward shows of godliness. But God sees the heart. God knows the thoughts that go on in the mind. God knows the things that you would do if he gave you the opportunity to do it. He knows the corruption within. He knows how men try to cover it up with money and favor and PR firms. He knows how human beings turn to blame shifting and press releases and non-disclosure agreements to protect the ministry all in the name of Christ. But he is not mocked. He knows all the times that preachers don't preach what they should because they know they will lose their biggest donors if they do. He knows when the leaders cover up the crimes of other leaders because they desire the book deal or the seat on the platform or the invitation to the next conference. God knows the times when we condemn the sinners out there and practice the same things in our own camp. Paul wrote about it in Romans 2, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. 
For you who judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. God is not impressed with even if you have the outward trappings of Jew or Gentile, for he sees the heart. He despises the hardened and impenitent heart, no matter what trappings it takes. This is how Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, and then he says something strange. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. What does this have to do with anything? Well, let's look at what he says. Up until John, God preserved the Jewish nation with a scripture that we now know as the Old Testament. He had all kinds of rules and regulations so that the nation wouldn't destroy themselves before Christ came into the world. All of it pointed to Christ and the coming kingdom of God. But the Old Testament wasn't the kingdom of God. Abraham's household wasn't the kingdom of God. David's reign wasn't the kingdom of God. Solomon's reign wasn't the kingdom of God. Of course, the exile into Babylon certainly wasn't the kingdom of God. In fact, there wasn't a good old days for the nation of Israel. Because it all pointed forward to something else. The kingdom of God. It would be a time when God's word would reign supreme, that God would dwell with his people and be their God. The tabernacle of God would be with them. It would be a time when war between creation and man, between God and man, between man and man would be over. There would be no more curse. There would be a kingdom of love and peace and nothing unclean or hateful or wicked would spoil the beautiful mountain of God using Old Testament terms. This is what the entire nation of Israel was looking forward to. This was what was proclaimed up until John. And then John started preaching a change and saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus began preaching, it said he preached the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus was on the earth going from town to town, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, casting out demons feeding the hungry, releasing men and women and children from the bondage of the kingdom of the devil. And everyone began saying, this is the kingdom that was promised. And they all flocked to him. They were all pressing to enter in. The tax collectors and the sinners and the poor and the outcasts and the Lazaruses and the lepers and the Marys and Marthas of the world were all pressing to enter into the kingdom. And they flocked to Christ. We even read one account where they tore the roof apart in order to lower a man down to be in front of him. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees were longing for that kingdom, but only on their terms. And their terms were this. We're in, you're out. Remember, they were lovers of money. That means they believed that they were the gatekeepers. They were the important ones. We will tell you what God expects. We will tell you what God desires and what God hates. We have the keys of the kingdom. We'll open them to the people that fit our agenda and shut them to the tax collectors and the sinners. We're the experts. Didn't you see the red carpet and the jet airplanes we flew in on? We have the money and the power. We will say who gets the seats on the bus 
We will say who gets the places on the platforms. We will say who sits in the cheap seats. Everyone's pressing into the kingdom of God, but they all tend to press their own way. Some fight to press in. Some fight to make sure the wrong sort are kept out. But there's one thing that everyone needs to remember about the kingdom of God. There's not one little speck of the law that will pass away. Because God sees the heart. What will your money and your glory and your power do when the thoughts and intents of your heart are exposed before all? And then in a rather strange segue, he all of a sudden starts talking about divorce. Remember, he is stripping the excuses of the Pharisees bare. They're lovers of money. So what he's saying in effect is this. Right now, while you're all scoffing and mocking me, right now, while you're plotting against me because I eat and drink with publicans and sinners, right now you are exalting yourselves among the commoners, the riffraff, and those who don't know the law, and at the same time you're practicing what you think is a loophole that lets you play wife swap. In those days in Israel, it was not possible for a woman to divorce her husband. Only a husband could divorce his wife. All of Jesus' teaching against divorce were said in that context against this particular style of the horrendous abuse of women. Moses gave the divorce decree and allowed it in Deuteronomy 24 to protect the weak, to protect women primarily, for they had no power. The Pharisees viewed it instead of as a protection against abuse, they viewed it as a loophole. With their friends, money would change hands, seats at the tables would be earned and exchanged, and an evening with someone else's beautiful wife would be paid for. And anyone would say, well, wait a second, isn't that adultery to spend the night with somebody else's wife? Nope, we found a loophole, and here's the loophole. Moses said that a man is allowed to divorce his wife as long as he writes a bill of divorcement. So I can just say, well, I don't like her hair, or I don't, how, how she, I don't like how she spoke to me. One rabbi said, I don't like how she burned my dinner. And you can throw her out legally as long as you sign a bill of divorcement. Then the next guy can pick her up and marry her. We exchange the money. We'll call it a dowry to keep it holy when it's really just baptized prostitution. The woman had no say in the matter. This is why Jesus didn't spend a long time explaining it, because all he had to do was say this, and the Pharisees who heard him knew exactly what he was talking about. But Jesus is saying this, yeah, do whatever you want to. You sign your divorce papers, you find all your fancy loopholes, you switch things around on and on and on. God sees the heart, he knows what to call it. It's adultery. The seventh commandment was given to protect primarily women and the innocent parties. If men, because there's a curse on the world in Genesis 3.15, it says, your desire will be toward your husband, but he will rule over you. And this curse was in the world until Christ came into the world. The divorce decree was given to protect women from the worst of the abuses. If men go the way of their heart and there is no restraint and no laws and no sanctions, women simply become playthings that are exchanged for money. It's happened in every culture. 
It will continue to happen until Christ comes again. The laws against adultery and the regulation of marriage are given to protect the weak, not to keep them in bondage. At first glance, this verse seems out of place. But it isn't. Looking at the whole passage, Jesus could have used any example. You think you're highly esteemed before God, but you're murderers. You think you're highly esteemed before God, but you're revilers. You're filled with hatred. You break your oaths. You abuse the poor. You steal from widows. You don't honor your parents. He accused them of all of that in many other places. But this time he chose one example. He knew who he was talking to. And he says, you swap your wives under the pretense of following God. But God sees the heart. You're adulterers. Yeah, get your papers, exchange your money, whatever. God sees the heart. You're not fooling him. You might fool the public with your PR firm and your carefully crafted image. So go ahead, make your excuses that men will buy. You can pretend it's about what she was wearing. You can pretend it was because you were drunk. You can pretend you thought she was over 18. You can pretend that you thought she gave consent. But God isn't fooled. He knows what it's called. It's called adultery. And an adulterer will not enter the kingdom of heaven, no matter what excuses you give. So we strip all of that away. You realize it leaves us all without excuse. Because all of us really at heart are experts at pointing the fingers at people we don't like in order to justify ourselves before men. And this is why we all need Christ so desperately. We need a righteousness that isn't ours. We need a husband that never abuses or hurts his spouse. We need a king that isn't after money and all those things that are highly esteemed before men. We need a new record put on our account. Because there was only one that pleased God. The voice came from heaven at his baptism and said, This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And the scripture says, Only those who are pleasing to the Lord will enter into his holy hill. Psalm 24, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That isn't you and me. There's only one. It's Jesus Christ. And here's the difference. The tax collectors and the sinners that flocked to see Christ and to hear him. We don't know how many of them came to faith. But those who did had their sins, which were many, washed away. And when the Spirit was poured out on the church, they began to learn how to view the world differently. They learned to not strive after those things that are highly esteemed among men. And they learned how to love. They learned how to be patient. They learned how to rejoice, to be content. They learned how to rest in God's promises. And the Pharisees who rejected him and continued to reject him, they continued to build their platforms. They continued to strive after the best seats and the best invitations. They continued to look for that look of awe in the faces of the commoners when they walked down the street. And all the meanwhile, they continued to abuse their wives. They continued to cast them away when they got too old. They continued to look with contempt on the unwashed masses and call them the sinners. Until the day finally came when they'd be stirring up the crowds to say, crucify him. And they would tell Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. 
and then their iniquity would be complete. And the only thing left for them would be the Roman armies in AD 70. From the outside, they looked like experts. They looked righteous. They looked highly esteemed. No one dared to question them. But God saw the heart. Those who pressed to enter the kingdom and found Christ were still rough around the edges. They still had a lot of bad habits to unlearn. Some didn't even have proper clothes. All of them had really ugly backgrounds. But God didn't see that. In them he saw his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. He saw the perfect beautiful garments of Jesus. And seeing those garments, God looked on all of those not esteemed among men. He looked at those Gentiles. He looked at the women weeping tears on Jesus' feet. He looked at Zacchaeus, the tax collector, up in the tree. He looked at you. He looked at me. And he didn't see our ugliness. He saw Christ. And he said to us, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus will now go on to talk very practically about the difference between the esteem of men and the esteem of God using the story of Lazarus and the rich man. That's next week's sermon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, teach us to seek those things which are highly esteemed by you. A quiet and peaceful heart, a gentle spirit, a calm attitude love and joy and peace. And Father, we lack those things unless you give them. And so give them. Give a heart that will sing your praises and rejoice before you. In Jesus' name, amen.